the new executive chairman of the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship, pastor, bishop, and executive chairman, Larry Booker. Let's love the Lord together. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your wonderful, beautiful goodness and mercy. Smile on us, God. Uh, I'm going to let you be seated for just a moment. A lot of that has to do with me getting my act together here. Um, I want to say I'm I'm honored to be in the presence of uh, some of the greatest people in the world. I mean that. I don't. Uh, that's not hyperbole. I mean every word of that. And uh, it has been uh, it's been quite a journey, but this journey's just getting started. And. Uh, you know, when if you don't want to be talked about bad, don't do anything in life. If you want to be talked about good, you have to die. And um, so it 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 just it just works that way. And uh, you can't hardly do anything. And we all know this as a as a group that. Uh, you can't do anything but what it's going to be, of course, second-guessed and all kinds of motives put into it. And it's, it's always interesting. It's so interesting to hear what all things people have to say. You know, there are some people that look at the uh, Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship as uh, wild-eyed, right-wing radicals. There's other people that look at it as lily-livered compromisers. It just, it, just, it just works that way. I don't, I don't know what to do about it. You just got to be who you're supposed to be. Um, our chairman, Bishop Will, Wilson, we have rode the river together for the last 35 years. I met him officially at a uh, conference where I didn't know him and he didn't know me, but we happened to speak on the same side of a issue. And him and Von Morton approached me afterwards. I was just a struggling evangelist. And he said these words. He said, you stick with us, we'll run you good. And, uh, <laughs> and so through the years, I've, I've noticed, like our Bishop Wilson is uh, people... By the way, I'll tell you what's in the sack. What's in the sack, I think, is a beautiful globe that is indicative of your world vision. It was the best thing we could come up with that would so signify Nathaniel Wilson. He has a world vision. He really, really, really does. He really does. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard 
this is part of our outgoing bishop remarks. Uh, there's people that think that Nathaniel Wilson is, um, he's so right wing that he just, and, and then there's others that they, they call him liberal. And I was talking to one of them here a while back, and I said, what does it take to be a conservative? I mean, really, what do you have to do? Okay, there's, there's no, I've known him for 35 years, there's, there's, there's no television in the church. And you always got brand new people coming in. That church is well stocked with new converts. Trust me, I've watched it through the years. But, so there's no television, there's no Hollywood watching. There's um, no jewelry. There's no cut hair. There's no dyed hair. There's no women wearing pants on it. I, I said, what does it take to be a conservative? And I, and I finally figured out. I said, I said, I know what it is. You have to be mean and you can't use big words. So, you know, go, go kick somebody and talk dumb and you'll be all right. So anyway... He's done a great job, and uh, he's done a great job, he really has. So here we are, I watched him run the aisles, and I, th I said to myself, I'm just glad I made it up the stairs, praise God. We're about to uh, read our text, Elder Kuhn, we love you more than words can tell. It is so good to see you. We love you, Elder. We love you so much. We love you so much. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. We love you so much. We thank God for you. Thank God for you. And then there's two other... I'm going to let you proceed one more time. I want every missionary that's here, please, every missionary that's in this house tonight, stand. All of our missionaries, we have them all over. Come on. There's some right over here. Back here. Back here. Back here. If there's anybody that deserves a wonderful hand clap, God bless these missionaries going to the far reaches of the earth. We love you. We're so proud of you. We thank God for you. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God for you. And while we're standing, there's one more ovation we're going to give, and they can't hear it, but somebody tell them. These individuals that have been involved in Kingdom Kids have worked like dogs. They have worked absolute slap-dab, wore-out, work-like dogs. And we thank you. And if you know who any of them are, please, you need to approach them and thank them profusely for their labors. Now we're going to the Word of the Lord. We're going to go to the book of Daniel, chapter number 2. going to read one verse. I'm trying to get this watch off. That reminds me of the story of the little boy. Pastor unzipped, opened up his Bible, and the little boy said to his daddy, what's that mean? He said, 
he's going to, the portion of the word of the Lord he's going to read. He pulled out some notes. He said, what's that, Daddy? He said, those are the notes from which he's going to preach to us from. About that time, he took off his watch. He said, what's that mean, Daddy? He said, it don't mean a thing in the world. Hallelujah. But it does. It does. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 45. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it, that stone, break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain. And the interpretation thereof sure. Not The understanding of all dreams is not always certain and not always sure. But this dream was absolutely certain and the interpretation God gave Daniel was sure. And I know we've prayed, but one more time, could we sincerely ask that God would talk to every one of us? Lord Jesus, we are so mindful of you and your presence. We're also mindful of the hour in which we live. We're mindful of things that are taking place in this nation and in this world. And God, we need you to take us by the hand and we need to take you by the hand both tonight and through all of our tomorrows to be, to do, to accomplish that which you have ordained us all for. We commit ourselves in Jesus' name to you. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you. You may be seated to our eschatological scholars that are with us tonight, don't get excited. Uh, I'm just going to use these, this verse as a springboard to go into waters that I feel God would have us to go tonight. This text deals with the great vision of the night, the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had who stood at the realm and helm of that great civilization, Babylon. And he had the dream of a great statue, as it were, with a head of gold, the breast, arms of silver, the belly, as it were, of brass, the legs of iron, and then the feet were part clay and part iron. While Nebuchadnezzar beheld this massive, utterly impressive sight, he sees, apparently from the corner of his eye, a stone cut but not by hands, and it is heading 
towards this great image. It is growing as it, as it comes to it, and it smashes the image. And when we read of this later, and he wakes up without remembrance of anything than that he'd had a monumental dream, we know the story. There was not one soothsayer, astrologer, wise man that had an answer. All were going to be slain. Daniel said, don't be hasty. They spent the night praying. God gave them both the dream and the interpretation. And so he explains that he was the head of gold, Babylon. Following that would be a media Persian, two-arm uh, inferior in that it was silver civilization arise. After that would come brass, which represented the nation of Greece and Alexander the Great's overcoming of Persia, and then the great Roman Empire. And he sees this image in other forms and other dreams and places. Uh, Daniel does throughout the book. And then he sees where, and that is those legs of iron where this terrible terrible uh, Roman civilization. Then he saw that there would be a day where the feet of that image were partly strong, partly weak, partly clay, partly iron. But in those days, there would come a stone that would smite the feet and everything that was attached to it would be disintegrated and blown away like the chaff of a summer threshing floor. And the stone would grow and grow and be a mountain that would fill the whole earth. And he said that dream is certainty. And my interpretation is absolutely sure. And so here we are. We understand, I'm, I'm leaning that you, 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 you've kept up and ministers have kept up enough that we're all on the same page right now. And uh, I just want to talk to us about the, what I call the mountain kingdom. And that's what you and I are part of tonight. We are part of that mountain kingdom that while the nations of this earth are, are in a quandary, they don't know where to turn, what to do, some are strong, some are weak, but it's all a mess. In fact, the very fact when we get to verse 45 and he talks about this being broken pieces, he doesn't even give them in the order that Nebuchadnezzar received it. It's iron, then it's brass, it's clay, and then it's silver, and then it's gold, and and they're out of order because when that thing gets hit by the stone, everything, it's, it's going to be blown away, blown to pieces. It's going to be that mountain kingdom that remains. And that's where we are. We are part of that mountain kingdom. Now, historians are like doctors, they're like scientists, they're like theologians. They all have their various and sundries opinions about numbers of things. And uh, historians, depending on who you read, some state that there have been 24 great civilizations in this earth. 
Some state there have been 13. Some states, some of the civilizations are still somewhat intact. And uh, some state that they're all gone and we're dealing with fragments and, and on and on and on. So, so trust me, God's got it down. So whatever started and finished and came and went, whatever's on the way out, etc., the thing that matters to us is a mountain civilization. And this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us we have a kingdom which cannot be moved. It cannot be moved. That's the civilization that we are part of. It's the one that is still here. We are part of that civilization. The same one that righteous Abel, he's part of that. Noah is part of that. Enoch was part of that. It's all part and parcel. It's, it's here a little and there a little. And, 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 and this stone that was cut without hands, it was created by God. And when this thing rules the earth, we'll all be there. And Moses is part, and David's part, and John the Baptist is part, and Isaiah is part of it. The apostles are part of that. You and I are part of a spiritual civilization that cannot be moved. Now, I'm going to give you the title of what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk to us about God's spiritual civilization and organized, rugged individualism. God's spiritual civilization and organized, rugged individualism. There are, there are several definitions of the word rugged. So I'm just going to narrow it to this one, meaning rugged as in having a sturdy, strong constitution. Some may say, well, boy, you sounds to me like you're kind of oozing in there and going to play off what Bishop Wilson preached last night. Well, I don't know who got started first, but I've been working on this one for a long time. And uh, I just, I, I knew I shouldn't have shared my notes with him, but what can you do, you know? <laughs> you, just, you just do what you got to do, you know? No, we have not colluded. So, but by rugged means having a sturdy or strong constitution. And then I add into this, and as in possessing individual spirituality and personal walk, with God that contains one's own healthy convictions and connection with Jesus Christ and his work and will. Everybody has to have that of their own or they're at best a tagalong. And tagalongs often end up like Lot. They don't make the cut. We have to be more than a tagalong. This has got to be something that's in each and every one of us. It's got to be deep in us, individually. And when that is the case, 
that makes for strong individuals. It just it 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 works that way. And so what we have here in the worldwide Pentecostal fellowship is a bunch of strong individuals. If it were not so, we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't be here. There was something that affected each and every one of us that just said, I want a preferred future. I want a preferred future. And those things don't come easy, and it does take courage. And it takes individuality that says, for me and my house, this is the direction we're going. And it may be against certain tides, but it's just the way it is. So with this individual strength that is in us, we work as a uh, group of like-minded, strong men and women in spite of the fact of the basic flaws that come with us being human beings. Duh. And so we have to work, and, and to those of you that are so bent on changing everybody around you, you better stop and think, how hard is it to change yourself before you can go to work on everybody else? So, so we just do the best we can, and, uh, and we must never lose our ability to walk with God, if need be, totally individually. But at the same time, grasping the hands, the arms, and the hearts of as many that think and feel like we do about God and His work and His church and righteousness and this beautiful doctrine and say, we're giving it our best shot, Bubba. We're giving it our best shot. Now, of all the civilizations, there is one in history that was a civilization in itself that I do want to talk to us about. And uh, it was a long-lived civilization, but we're going to deal with it in about the early 1400s. And this was the kingdom of China. You say, well, China's still here, but it, it is, but it's nothing like what it was, especially under the high-water days of the Ming dynasty. So we're going to take a little look at it in the early 1400s, and as you'll see, there's a reason we're doing this. China was vast, both in landmass and in government. The Ming Dynasty was a large government. In case you wonder where it was in, 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 in this world, the um, ten largest cities in the world, only one of them was European, and that was Paris. And it had about 200,000 people, which by today's figures in America is not that big a city in a way. The population of London at that time was about 50,000. Beijing had over one million. One million. 
They were at that time building the imperial palace, known today and still there as the Forbidden City. That palace area was 7,800,000 square feet or 180 acres, just the palace buildings. They were at that time reopening and improving the Grand Canal, whereby inner national ships would go back and forth. That was 1,100 miles long. That's quite a highway. In 11th century China, they had printed, they had invented printing presses. They had invented paper. They were from the 11th century using paper money. They had wallpaper and toilet paper in the 11th century. By the 1300s, the Chinese had cannons and gunpowder-filled cannonballs in the 1300s. They possessed insecticides for their crops. No other place on earth that we know of had that. So their agriculture was way ahead. They had fishing reels. They had matches. They had magnetic compasses. They had toothbrushes. And a lot of Europeans didn't even have teeth. And they had, if you wondered if they were civilized, they had golf. They called it Trayvon. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So in the early 1400s, China was poised to change the course of world history and to make the Ming emperor literally master of the entire world. If you go to Nanjing today, there is a full-size replica of a middle-size treasure ship that was part of the fleet by Zheng Ha. It's spelled Zheng He, but it's pronounced Zheng Ha. He was the most famous sailor admiral in all of Chinese history. This ship is 400 feet long, almost twice the size of the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria put together that Christopher Columbus at the end of the 1400s would go across the Atlantic with. This one ship was just one ship of a fleet of 337 like ocean-going junks. They had an additional 188 flat-bottom transport ships. Now to put that into perspective, when the British fleet ruled the seas, especially in the days of Napoleon and under the, the auspices of Lord Horatio Nelson, they had 100 ships of the line. This vast Chinese armada, these ships had multiple masts. They had buoyancy air chambers to sustain them from sinking upon damage. They had a combined fleet crew of 28,000 men. 
This navy they had at the beginning of the 1400s would not be matched ever until World War I. They were poised to conquer the world. So Emperor Long Yur ordered Zheng Hu to visit, to sail to parts unknown. He went to 37 countries. In, this is the early 1400s, in 20 years, from, from 1404 to 24. He visited Thailand, Sumatra, Java, India, Singapore, Malacca, Ceylon. He even went up the Red Sea. On the very last trip, he was ordered to Hormos and other countries to carry on trade. Colored silks, hemp, porcelain, paper, oil, wax, musks. Peppers, pearls, rhinoceros horns, and on and on and on. China was poised to rule the world. Nobody had anything smidgenly close. By contrast, the West, i.e. Europe, was a miserable, wretched backwater. It was recovering from one of the Black Death plagues. Some say the one of the 1300s, early 1400s, took out half the population of Europe. Some historians believe that. It was bad. Today, Brother Sandy made mention of Europe in the 15, at the, about in the late 1400s, beginning in the year 1500, being so miserable people were given up on life. From 1540 to 1800, the sanitation in England was so bad, the average life expectancy was 37 years. If you lived in the city of London, you might make it to your 20s. In Europe, one in five children died in their first year. If you lived in London, one in three died the first year. Europe was in incessant wars. In the early 1400s, the Anglo-French War was about to resume, and, 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 and it, was, it was just, it was wretched. If you want to know if they were ahead or behind, in 1701, a man named Jethro Tull invented a seed drill for planting. And you just thought he, that was a rock group, if that was an Englishman. The problem was, the Chinese had invented the same thing 2,000 years before. In 1709, in Coldbrook, England, they invented blast furnaces for smelting iron ore. They were thrilled. The Chinese had invented that 200 years before Jesus Christ. So all of Europe was basically a vast woodland, except for a few universities and some priests that knew more than the average person. It was medieval villages. They were little more than islands cut off one from another. Typically, they'd have 50 to 500 people. Few ideas. A vocabulary of possibly 600 words. A man might live his entire life and by sight be able to recognize two to 300 people. His entire life. If man traveled to a village, he usually would not go over 20 miles away. The reason was, even in Europe, even in France, the only place they spoke French was Paris. 
you wouldn't even know the dialect 20 miles away from you throughout all Europe. And, 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 and you really didn't want to go over seven miles away from home so you could get home that night lest you be murdered. And the chances of you being murdered were very great. And the chances of your murderer being caught was less than a hundred, was less than one in a hundred. In the Americas, the only thing happening there we're speaking of was the Incan and Andean empires. In the early 1400s, Byzantium Empire was fixing to breathe its last breaths because the Ottomans were crawling it down. So if you were to compare China to Europe at the same time, no comparison. It's a joke. But listen closely. If you were to look around that early 1400 European world and say for the next 500 years, these crude, backward European peoples will rule the rest of the world. That thought would be utterly absurd. These people can't even get it together. But that's exactly what happened. They would conquer the Oriental empires, including China. They would subjugate all of Africa, the Americas, Austro-Asia. By the late 1500s, Europe considered the West, listen to me, had 10% of the world's population. They had land mass of only 15% of the population. But by 1913, 11 European nations with America, somewhat, controlled three-fifths of all lands and populations of the earth. And they controlled 79% of all global finance on earth. By 1900, these, these people that couldn't get their act together, by 1900, there was an astonishing reversal when it came to the cities of the world, the top ten cities. Only one city in Asia was in the top ten, and that was Tokyo. London had become the megalopolis of the world with 6.5 million people. The life expectancy of London was twice that of the entire nation of India. And Western civilization, I'm going somewhere in all this, became a kind of a template for the rest of the entire world. Not even so much by sword, but by example. So, all of that should have been China. It should have been China. Not this backwater Europe that fussed and fought and, 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 and the world so messed up. How did this happen? How did China blow it? And they blew it. China 
had a centralized government so central that it settled into the power of one man, the emperor, the Ming dynasty, the supreme monarch, the king, named Long Yur. Now, of all of the governments of the world, any, most any historian will tell you, or like Winston Churchill put it this way, he said, democracy is the worst government in the world except for all the rest. So he said it's, 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 it's the best thing going. But, but students of history will tell you the best government in the world is strong monarchical government where you have a king. If, everybody say if, you have a good king. The worst government in the world is if you have a king. If, say if, he's a bad king. Classic case in point is Solomon. When Solomon was a good king, buddy, woo. When Solomon started turning bad, woo. But it was there. China had strong centralized government. And in 1433, Long Yur died. And an all-powerful new emperor man came to power. And he looked at the navy, and, and huh, the admiral had recently died, and this new emperor changed the course of human history. He had the fleet destroyed. He burned up all the ships. He banned all future oceanic voyages he destroyed all of Admiral Hu's notebooks. Had he not done that, there's a good chance we'd all be speaking Chinese today. Because what could have stopped him? And when it comes to why he did that, nobody knows. Nobody knows why he did it. So there were some unbelievable decisions being made in China. But over here in Europe, there were some small but also very powerful decisions being made as well. One of them, amen, was talked about today. Amen. One of those decisions was uh, brought out by the a man by the name of Christopher Columbus. In 1492, Spain sent him looking for India, and he stubbed his toe on the Americas. But believe it or not, if you, in a sense, a more important decision than that was made in 1497. A king named Manuel of a small sliver of a nation called Portugal Listen close. He placed a sailing captain named Vasco da Gama over four small ships. All four ships could have fit inside of one of Zheng He's. 
he had 170 men at his command, not 28,000. And he sent that small little crew out on a journey that would eventually tilt the entire world westward. Just a group of men that made a decision. We want a preferred future. There's something we want to do different. So they sent and went around the tip of Africa and in search of spices, trading routes. And a few years later, when the Portuguese reached China, Portugal, with a population less than 1% of China's population, commandeered and dominated world trade. They had trading posts all up and down around Africa, Arabia, India, Malaysia, Japan, and China. And they did this even though from 1560, from 1550 to 1650, Europe was at war one with another 75% of the time. But the splintered nations of Europe set about stumbling and bumbling and they reached and they influenced their world. The United States is a story all by itself. Just one example. In 1990, the average American was 79 times richer than the average Chinese. And since World War II, the last 70 years, America has set the pace for the Western world. And the rest of the world, Europe was not far behind, but now they, looked at, they look at America. University style and courses, economic systems, market set prices, medical institutions and sciences, Western pharmaceuticals, patterns and marketing of consumption, more and more Western diet, clothes, housing, even to the place of five and six days of work week with a two-week vacation. Now, why did, when you look at the Americas, North America do so much better than South America? Because South America, Central and South America, are richer in natural resources than is North America. It's richer. We're rich, but it's richer. Big part of that reason is because South America was deep into strong centralized governments being ran sub-governmentally by a very powerful Catholic church from Europe. Listen close. And that Catholic church did not brook rugged individualism in either men or local churches. There is something to be said about a man of God and a woman of God saying we're going to build a church in this city. There is something to be said for rugged individualism 
that says, I know how to pray. I know how to get a hold of God. My God's big. My God, your God's big, but my God's big. If God did it for you, my God will do it for me. <laughs> now, I, I want to I I really, be careful how I do all this, but, but at the same time, well, anyway, I wasn't exactly raised in that climate. I remember, I remember praying in the first church that I pastored. I promise you. And uh, there had been a, a, a new man at the helm of the movement I was in. I promise you. And, I'm not, and I know God appreciated my prayer. I know he did. And I, and, but I would pray. I'd be in the church for hours. And I'd spend a lot of time praying for, for the new superintendent. And saying, God, I'm serious as I can be. God. And he knew I was God. Give him a program that we can all have revival. And I was as serious as I could be. And I know God appreciated it. But there was angels probably standing there going, Hey dude, why don't you pray for some thoughts of your own about how you can reach this city and da-da-da-da-da. He likes us working together, but there's something to be said for rugged individualism. That says, you know what, for me and my house. Amen. This is our city. This, this, this. No, 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 devil. No, no, no. My God's got the answers. My God's big. My God's mighty. And yet at the same time, he's got the revelation how to link arms with people of like faith and like burden and like desire and like dream. Hallelujah. There's something to be said for spiritual organization built with rugged individuals. One of the things that North America did allowed competition, allowed property rights, they worked for a consumer society. They had a profound work ethic. And they were head in science and medicine, etc. So these things were taking place. And here we are in America. And we know the struggles that it's in. Hallelujah. But we must observe and never forget the great strides made down through history. Noah was part of that mountain kingdom. He was a rugged individual. Abraham was a part of that mountain kingdom, but he was a rugged individual. As was Jacob, as was Joseph, as were the judges, as was Samuel, as was David, as was Elijah, as was Elisha, as were every single one of the apostles. There wasn't a milk toast among them. And yet on the day of Pentecost, they were there in one place, in one accord. Amen. Preaching, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. I'm not going to talk very much tonight about, about church government. Do you know why? 
Because the New Testament don't talk very much about church government. It does not. What happened in Jerusalem, it became the doctrinal template whereby emerging ministries such as the Apostle Paul's to the Gentiles, that was a new world. He would go to check in with them to make sure he was on right track with this death, burial, resurrection doctrine. And they said yes. But note, when it came to the front lines of where people were working and the work of God was going on, that was not being orchestrated by Jerusalem. That was being orchestrated by the new Jerusalem. And individuals catching their individual burden and their individual call, which is one reason you find when the apostles died, according to traditional history, they were all over that world. And they died in their separate places. Rugged individuals walking and talking with their God. Building a kingdom, a mountain kingdom. Amen. That's going to break in pieces everything else this world's trying to put together. That's what we're doing. That's what we are part of. As close as I can tell, New Testament government, once it was out there in the trenches, it was based more on who had won who and who was mentored by who. That's the reason that Paul could say to Timothy, you head there back to Ephesus and you go here and Titus, you go to Crete and you do thus and so and this and that. And, and Apollos, I'd really like you to go back to see the Corinthians. But he had, now if it was Timothy and Titus, all he had to do was say jump and their answer was how high? Because he won them. But he had to tell the Corinthians it was not Apollos' will at all to come at this time. He will come at a more convenient time. Do you think he'd have got that answer from Timothy or Titus? But Paul did not win Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila won Apollos. And so there was this rugged individualism. And Paul would have to respect that. I, re I respect you, Paul. I mean, Apollos. Timothy, you get over there and do this and so on. <laughs> but somewhere someplace Timothy had his own disciples and Paul passes on the scene and a new mantle amen and John has his such a one would be Polycarp and we go on down through history amen and what they don't realize is everybody these rugged individuals are part and parcel of a kingdom that God is orchestrating that one of these days this mountain is going to come down we're going to meet him in the moment in the twinkling of an eye they're coming out of the graves. We're going to meet him in the air. Hallelujah. But that mountain's coming back, and it's going to smash in pieces everything else. We're part of that kingdom. We're part of that number. We're not the entire. We're just a part of it. And, and if I'm guilty of hyperbole, God knows I'm trying to be as sincere as humanly possible. We're just a sliver. But I think it's a little bit more important sliver than what we get credit for. 
them little four ships and 170 men making their way over around the Cape of Good Hope. They didn't realize they're fixing to change world history. I'm simply telling you, whew, the potential that is wrapped up in this room and in the churches this represents and those that couldn't even be here. Amen. There's no telling what God's got in mind if we'll just walk with Him and talk with Him and say, you know what? We're going to work together best we can, but we're going to be ragged individuals and see this thing go forward. We're going to work. We're going to pray. We're going to put our hand to the plow. We're going to work in our cities. Now, in this process, you may be seated. Uh, there's been, when you look at this, for a group this size, and I probably, this is mind-boggling. You know, technically, because Brother Godair, Brother Kuhn, Okay, Brother Odom, Brother Wilson, this is really, the, we're closing in on the eighth year. This is the beginning of the ninth year. When I'm done, it's ten. And then he's going to finish up his part, and then we're just going to go drool on her, down our chin. Hallelujah. So we're fa- actually, technically, the best I can tell, finishing up the eighth year. This group that started on a hope and a prayer has so far raised, as of the other night, close to $5 million for the work of God. And it's had a lot of help of other men that are not members of this group, but they're rugged individuals that say, you know what, I kind of like some of that stuff. Hey, 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 hey. And when you stop and look at the unparalleled Missions, endeavors, and help that's going on around the world for the kingdom of God in finding and facilitating in what our missionaries are doing. Amen. And so much of the finding and facilitating, there's stuff going on. We don't even take credit for it. We don't even, there's a lot of times we've given money and our fingerprints almost ain't even on it. Because we want the work to go forward. God knows when and where and how to give out the rewards. Too many people do too much. Amen. Simply because they got to have credit for this. No, 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 no. It's the kingdom. You can't give a cup of cold water, but what you're going to get your reward. (coughs) We've got to say, God, it's the kingdom. It's the kingdom. There's a mountain kingdom and we're part of that kingdom. The extremely powerful and moving home missions, retreats, endeavors, and designated offerings, both in home and and home and foreign missions, and what took place here. Amen. Can I tell you something? What took place here yesterday, that's just a portent of things to come. That was, there, there was, God was opening up a can in people's hearts. God was opening up some revelation in people's hearts. You know, we got a whole lot more than we think we got. We got access to a whole lot more than we think we've got. 
Amen. And there are home missionaries out there. Buddy, there's men and women on the field. Stuff that we don't even think nothing of can mean everything to them. It's time. We got a kingdom that's being built. Hallelujah. And, 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 and the Apostolic School of Theology, Wilson University, just trust me, folks. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Miracle after miracle has been taking place because God wants a place where there's some sanity taught, where there's some conviction taught, where there's some sense taught. Amen. I like something that my son so Joel said at, 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 the, at the graduation. He got up and he was the speaker that night and he said, I've actually come in and out of a university and I came out stronger in the message than I went into it. What's that worth? Come on now, what's that worth? What's, I said, what's that worth? And not just to us, but to people around the world. They're looking and then, and I'm not, forgive me, Jesus, you know, but when that premier Bible, like Brother Wilson said, listen to me. That could be the most important thing any of us have ever done. If you don't think one Bible can have an effect, those of you that know your Bibles and know Bible history, you know what the Schofield did. Unbelievably affected. Amen. And in many ways, some good and some not so good. Uh, Dakes. Dakes Bible. And, and a lot of the scholastic world laughs at it, but there's a lot of people that hang on every word that old guy had to say. This premier study Bible, brothers and sisters, we're just a little ship out here. We ain't got, got 28,000. We don't have a big fleet, but I'm here to tell you, God don't need much to do some stuff. He don't need my. There's a little widow woman. All she put in was two mites, but it's all she had. And Jesus stopped the show and said, that little lady just outgave everybody else. There's got to be a revelation in this God. Whatever I can do, I want to do it. I want to give it my very best. The Peak Conference is growing more powerful every year. Hope Corps, the strides. This time next year, we'll probably have a thousand graduates. This time next year. Hallelujah. Excellent, excellent Bible quiz program. Youth camps, camp meetings, ladies meetings, men's meetings. Amen. Revitalization of Sunday school. Now we got Kingdoms Kids conferences. Can I tell you, God's being good. God's being good. God's being good. And listen, this annual summit ain't bad, Bubba. And by the mercies of God, it's getting bigger every year. And listen, this is important. We're not having to breathe life, you may be seated, into hardly any of it. It's just being carried out by the rugged individualism of one God, apostolics, 
who are totally apostolic in doctrine, holiness, evangelism, and worship that are seeing needs and getting burdens and rolling up their sleeves and saying we're going to put our shoulder to the wheel and we're going to see some things. Now, I am much, much, much closer to being done than any of you think. There are two of the spiritual civilization called the church. And any type of organizational efforts. This is called Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. That word fellowship is the biggest word there for me. Okay? There's two sides of the roads when it comes to any kind of brethren working together. There are people that are absolutely gaga head over heels in love with organization and they can't seem to live without it. There are others that hate any kind of organization and they don't understand anybody that even thinks about living with it. Now for those that love it, here's the problem with the former. You got to love the kingdom. Listen to me. You have to love the kingdom. If we can work together, Amen. Work together. The problem of, I've seen people, they come to the place, they love organization more than they even love the Savior. I have, I have, I, I have seen this. You know, David did what he did because he loved God and he loved Israel. Joab won, I would venture to say, close to the same amount of battles that David did. He was involved in as many or more than David. But Joab did what he did for Israel. He loved Israel. If he threw God into one of his statements, it was a side note. With David, it was always God first. God first. And Israel benefited because David put God first. Israel benefited under Joab, but Joab put Israel first as head of God. And that was not able to carry Joab across the finish line. And, and here's the problem. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it this way. One God, Jesus, name apostolic preachers. That mean business about living for God. They, they're serious. This is in their, it's in their marrow. I don't care how wonderful their family is, how beautiful their family is, how close and near and dear their wives are, or anything else. And you may not agree with this comment, but I, I, I just, hear me out. In one sense, and I haven't found the word yet. There's a word out there, but I haven't found it. The word isn't lonely, and the word isn't solitary, but it's somewhere in there. So that a real man of God, there's just always this spot. And it's a God thing. Listen to me, brethren. Listen to me. It's a God thing. Because God says, that spot belongs to me. I'm the only one that can fill it. I've got to be number one. I've got to be number one. 
And the reason it's that way is you're either going to be God's man or you're going to be somebody's. You're going to be somebody's. Or you're going to be God's man. That's the reason sometimes there's situations where we say, he's, you know, he's a good guy. He's a good company man. And what that means is, when push comes to shove, to shove comes to push. Sometimes company policy overrides righteousness. We can never go there. We can never go there. We cannot go there. We cannot, we cannot go there. We cannot go there. We cannot go there. Hallelujah. We have to do what we do because we love him. And we love one another and we work together, but he's always number one. The flip side to those that abhor and hate I'm not talking about they don't just suffer. I mean, they, they, they hate it. They hate any kind of organization. Is for one thing, they fall into a category. There was a Roman general. This was, by the way, I read this on one of the new minister's applications. He put this in his closing comments. A Roman general once stated concerning the ancient Britons, which the Romans conquered, quote, while they, the British, fight in detached parties, they sacrifice the general cause. They don't even band together enough to defeat the Romans. There is to be something to be said for us fighting it out, but also banding together. Furthermore, consistency is not always found there. I'm not here to make anybody mad. I'm just telling I got a good friend of mine, very good friend of mine. And all I can say is I promise you before God, he does not care me telling what I'm about to tell. And uh, he and some other good, good men, good brethren, they, uh, they put together a large uh, meeting, large meeting, large, large meeting, you know, camp meeting actually, and people come and, and go, and, but... They, and he, very upset because we started the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. Very upset. And, and you guys created another organization. And that gang, I mean, he really was down, down. Well, that's fine. I love him. He loves me. So one day we were talking. He said, boy, brother, so-and-so, he's, he's, he's really mad right now. It's one of their guys. I said, how come? He said, He's no longer camp director. I said, really? How come? He said, oh, we voted him out. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we voted in a new camp director. I said, oh. I said, you know, that's a big camp. You have a big camp. That takes a lot of money to run that camp. He said, I said, surely there ain't none of you guys that's silly enough to run that much money through one local church. I mean, that'd be asking for trouble. Oh, no, 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 no. We... No, we got it. I mean, so it's incorporated. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, it's incorporated. We got that. It's a piece of cake. And I said, now, for it to be incorporated, you got to have bylaws for any corporation. Yeah, well, we got bylaws. And I said, bylaws, they, they demand that you got a president, you got a secretary, you got a treasurer. Oh, yeah, 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 we got them. 
I said, now, when, how do you get these guys? I said, well, we, we, uh, you know, we, we vote. You vote once a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, now, you, that, that's a good-sized camp, but where you're having everything, that's expensive. I said, you don't, you don't uh, I know that you get good offerings there, but that ain't enough to run that camp. Not with everything you got going. No, no, it's not. I said, so you, you, you all, all your churches, you pitch in. Yeah, 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 we pitch in. I said, do you do it monthly or quarterly? He said, well, some do every month and others put it in quarterly. I said, oh. So you have bylaws and corporation papers. You vote and elect presidents, secretaries, treasurers. You pay dues months, once a month or quarterly, but you abhor the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship because we are an organization. He said, oh, come on. I said, no, you come on, dude. Give me a break. Duh. Brothers and sisters. Okay. He said, you know, Brother Booker, you're starting out like this. This ain't going to be fun at all these next two years. I'm so close to being done, you ain't even going to believe it. All right. Seven minutes. Get, get your watch out, Brother Spell. Seven minutes. Musicians, do come. Come. Don't do nothing. Just come. Okay. I'm going to quote one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life. I love him like a daddy. That's Brother Paul Price. How many times did we hear that wise elder get up meeting after meeting and say, we need just enough organization to keep peace in the family? That was his mantra. Let's have just enough to keep peace in the family. And just enough rugged individuals where we can rise up, let's all stand and say, we can work together. We can see Hope Corps begin to raise up a generation. If you think that's Hope Corps, if you turn your nose up at Hope Corps, let me tell you something. Alexander the Great was making his way off of the map. And his men were tired. They had families back in Macedonia and Greece. They wanted to go home. And he understood that. But his name was so powerful and on and on. He went about and he said, to Persian boys, 12 and 13 years of age, how many of you want to be in Alexander's army? And 30,000 stepped forward. They were 12 and 13 years of age. He put some of his top generals and he said, you train them for five years. And some people say, oh man, five years, you can do that. Five years later, he had an army of 17, 18 year olds, trained, hardened men, standing army of 30,000 that would march with him into India. This Hope Corps business is not small potatoes. I'm here to tell you, there's an army being put together. 
and, and I'm going to take it a step further. Where we all have to go is looking around our churches. And yes, it's easier for some to travel because of economic factors. But there's also young people in our church. we got to step up to the plate and say, God, we got to get them over there. There is a standing army. we got young people that want to do something for God. They don't want the world. They're not interested in Hollywood. They just want to do something for Jesus. And so we're creating by the grace of God a world without it becoming binding and separating any of us from other good, clean, heaven-bound apostolic. We're just working together. Amen. Whoever wants to link arms and say, come on. We're going to watch our God move. Three minutes. You ready? Everybody ready? Here's the most profound thing I've said all night. You ready? There is nothing perfect. There's no perfect movement. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect family. There's no perfect situation. We do the best we can with what we got. And we go forward. We learn how to work with one another in our strengths and our weaknesses. It's part of the program. And it's part of the training. And so now, I'm looking at a group of rugged men and women. Some of you, some of the sacrifices you've made just to be here. The things you put off, the cost dearly just for you to be here. But you did it because something was beating in your heart. And can I tell you, I think God was letting that beat in your heart. Because when we leave this place and we go back to our places of labor, there's something that says, God, thank you for men and women that love this truth, that love this doctrine, that love this righteousness. It's good to know I'm part of a mountain. It's a mountain civilization and they will never be moved. And so, and forgive me for this. Forgive me. I know this is tawdry. I'm going to ask this just so I can take advantage of it first. My precious family that was here, could you come back down and bring all the grandkids this time? Those that are with you, some are in kids' kingdom. And then, families. Husbands, wives, sons, fathers, mothers, daughters, sisters, brothers. I think I'd like, one of these days, it's all going to come together. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, a mountain that will fill the earth. At this altar call tonight, what do you say this mountain kind of comes together? If possible, be with family members. If possible, be with church members. Folks from Rialto, begin making your way down here too. 
This altar is open for anybody and everybody that just says, God, and you may be, you may be the only rugged individual here from your church tonight or your family. It doesn't matter. Then step on out and say, God, I want you to use me like you have never used me before. I want you to, I want, I want you to grip my heart and I want to grip your hand. I want to be used. I want to see your glory. Come on, mamas. Come on, daddies. Come on, pastors. Come on,